Welcome to the New England Baseball Journal podcast. I'm your host, Dan Guttenplan. Thanks to Firecracker Sports for being the sponsor. For all of the top tournaments and showcase events, visit firecrackersports.com. We're excited about today's guest, Matt Blake, who is a Concord, New Hampshire native and now the pitching coach for the New York Yankees. Matt played his college baseball at Holy Cross from 2003 to 2007. He moved to Massachusetts with a couple of college friends after college, and he is working in sales for two years before meeting Eric Cressy in February of 2009. Cressy encouraged Blake to reach out to Kirk Fredericks, then the baseball coach at Lincoln Sudbury. That's where Blake ended up getting his first position as a pitching coach with Lincoln Sudbury, a position he held until 2014. Matt eventually became the pitching coordinator for the New England Roughnecks Travel Baseball Organization, as well as a bird dog scouting position for Matt Hyde and the Yankees. The Cleveland Indians came calling in 2015 and hired Matt as a lower-level coordinator. In 2020, the Yankees hired Matt Blake as their new pitching coach, along with Eric Cressy, co-founder and president of Cressy Sports Performance in Hudson, as their player health coach. We'll talk about Matt, about his unique journey from being a salesman out of college at Holy Cross all the way up to his current position as Yankees pitching coach. To see any of the content we have to offer on prep baseball, high school baseball, or college baseball, or the coverage leading up to the MLB draft, visit BaseballJournal.com. We are also working on our summer edition of New England Baseball Journal In that, we will go through the 2021 MLB Draft, talk about all our reactions to the draft, and then we will also cover the summer leagues. We'll highlight the prep baseball season and high school season and talk about the tournament champions from each of the six New England states. Thanks again for listening to the New England Baseball Journal podcast. Up next is our interview with Yankees pitching coach Matt Blake. Firecracker Sports serves all first-time and experienced coaches that are looking for quality showcase tournaments to promote their players and teams. We offer the most independently operated baseball and softball events in the Northeast region with qualified staff and college coaches to help you and your players get maximum promotion. Besides events, you can get all your baseball and softball needs with our player profiles, hotels, and even facility sales now. With Firecracker Sports, you can save time, effort and money by getting all of your events college resources and customer attention in one place every season welcome back to the new england baseball journal podcast we're with matt blake a concord new hampshire native who is now the pitching coach for the new york yankees matt thanks thanks for joining us on the podcast all right thanks for having me on yeah, we're, I'm excited that you have an incredible story, um, you know, going from a, a guy who played college baseball at Holy Cross and in a matter of, uh, you know, 10, 15 years, you're the Yankees pitching coach. How, have you been able to maintain your New England roots even since you started working with the Yankees? Yeah, I've tried to as much as best as I can. Obviously, I was living in Ohio previous, so kind of got moved away for a little bit, but still a lot of friends and family up in New England area, New Hampshire and Massachusetts, and a lot of baseball roots with the the high school team and the, the players I was working with back there. So definitely still uh, strong New England roots. 
That's great. Yeah, no, and I and so many, as you may know, so many of our readers are prospective uh, college baseball players or parents who are looking for their uh, their sons to get looks and get recruited. And so I want to start with your recruiting process at Holy Cross. Uh, was it difficult for you to drum up interest as a player in New Hampshire? And, and what was the recruiting process like? Yeah, at the time it was, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, because I was a 2003 grad of uh, high school. So I was playing for a travel ball team, uh, a senior Babe Ruth travel ball team. So it wasn't like the, the travel ball era of today. Um, but, you know, we played in some local regional tournaments and kind of had some smaller D3s, kind of the, the Wheatons, Bowdens, Colby's. That group was kind of looking around and then a little bit of exposure to like UVM at the time and Boston College and URI. But Holy Cross seemed to be the best fit for me just from the balance of both the academics and the Division One athletics. So um, it wasn't a long recruiting process, and it was kind of, you know, Coach Najarian at the time had seen me at like a Keen tournament. Uh, it was like a Legion and Babe Ruth kind of combination. So uh, definitely a little bit different uh, environment at that time. Yeah. And now uh, did you find it to be a difficult transition to go from uh, playing baseball in New Hampshire to Division One baseball? Yeah, I think at the time you're always trying to figure out how you measure up because you didn't have as much exposure to playing in Massachusetts or at that Division One level. And when we went down, and this is something I think is valuable for all kids to, when they're thinking about the recruiting processes, going and seeing a game and just looking around and seeing, like, does this look like a, a type of player that I could fit in with? Do I think I have that level of ability? And it felt like I had tools or skills that allowed me to play at that level. Obviously, I would have to earn my time there. But, you know, if you go to some of these games and you say you go watch a, a BC-UNC game and get a sense of the ACC compared to going to, you know, a Wheaton college game, I think you get a better idea of, you know, what's the physicality of the player, how hard are the pitchers throwing. You know, I think it gives you a pretty good idea of what you're, what you're getting yourself into. Yeah, and we're starting to get into the the time of year where guys are committing or starting their uh, summer league seasons, college, collegiate summer league season. I know you played for the Concord Quarry Dogs in the NECBL. How does that? How does summer baseball differ from college baseball? Is there is there less of a des, uh, a need or a desire to uh, for the wins and losses? Is it more of a scouting thing? How did you? How do you remember that experience? Yeah, I thought it was. Summer baseball is nice because it's kind of a fresh start. You know, obviously when you're in the Patriot League or you're at your school, you've kind of got a, a feel of where you fit in the mix of you know, your team and the environment and the league. And then you go to summer ball and it's like a fresh start and you kind of get to earn your stripes again. So I actually really enjoyed the summer ball experience. I was fortunate that Concord was hometown and they could host uh, me in that league. So I, it worked out really well in that regard. I didn't have to go out and you know live on the road for two months of the summer, which probably has some positive negatives to it because I think if you really want to play professional baseball, that's a great opportunity to, to see if you want to do it and can do it and kind of learn to, the ropes on your own. Uh, but it's definitely a fun experience. Yeah, and it, and as you as you go back and look at your college career, you've experienced some things that not a lot of major league baseball pitching coaches have. In that, some of the guys that you competed against are you're now coaching. One example, uh, or coaching against one is uh, Adam Adovino, uh, who was at college. You he was at Northeastern when you were at Holy Cross. Uh, and then you went on to coach him with the Yankees. Yeah. Did you find it challenging to coach uh, a player that you uh, knew as a player when you played? 
Yeah, it was definitely a, a learning curve of kind of how you coach those type of players, whether they're the same age as you or even older. We had Jay Happ, who's 38 last year. And I think trying to get a sense of, you know, what they need from you and kind of how to relate to them. Obviously, you know, people skills are important and just kind of learning how to either give that player the respect they deserve it, you know, because they're somewhat of a peer to you, but also know that they, they still need help and they want to be coached. So I think it's just trying to find that balance of what each player needs. And obviously a player that's your age, you're not going to come in and he's got, you know, nine, 10 years of major league experience. And that was my first year. So I'm not going to explain to him the ropes of the major leagues, but I can help him, you know, maybe pitch better. So I think there's just trying to find, you know, different avenues to communicate with those type of players. Right. Yeah, now I want to go back to uh, after you finished your career at Holy Cross, I was reading uh, a little bit about your background, and I know you got into sales for two years after college. Did you ever think that you were just completely done with the sport of baseball? Yeah, I thought there was a chance. You know, when I left Holy Cross, I kind of wanted to take a step away from baseball. I was kind of frustrated at how my own career ended, uh, thinking that I might have had a chance to play professional baseball in the senior year. It didn't go great. So I kind of stepped away. I didn't want to play independent league baseball and then figured, you know, my parents just helped me get through, a, you know, expensive private college. So it was like I need to show them I can have some level of income generating skills. So, you know, going in and getting a sales job and kind of learning the ropes there was important, kind of drawing some revenue for myself, learning the ropes of sales. Uh, and then once it came back around that next spring, kind of had the itch to get back on the field. And my dad had coached me growing up. So it's kind of a nice opportunity to just coach a rec team, like a 13-year-old Babe Ruth team. And we kind of had some fun doing it. And one thing led to another and it kind of started to snowball from there. Yeah, and then I read that you were really inspired to kind of go back into baseball full force after you saw a DVD uh, in which Eric Cressy kind of broke down movements of a pitcher joint by joint. What was it about that in, uh, video that kind of inspired you to change the course of your career? Yeah, so coming out of that spring where I coached, I ended up coaching a summer team, uh, like the all-star team from that group, and then a couple players wanted some individual lessons, and started giving some private lessons at the Concord Sports Center, uh, you know, maybe two, three players. And, you know, I felt like I had an okay understanding of the delivery and I was kind of diving in there, but some of these kids needed to get more athletic or they needed to, you know, increase their fitness level to, to be a better pitcher. So I was trying to find anything I could on that and kind of Eric Cressy was someone I kind of gravitated to when I saw Ron Wolforth DVD and he kind of broke down, you know, how to assess movement joint by joint, what fun fundamental movement looked like and how to then build the athlete up from there. And that kind of resonated for me because I'd never really heard anyone talk about it like that. It always been more of like a, a football mentality in the weight room. And he kind of had a little bit different lens that he was viewing, you know, human performance and kind of how to look at a baseball player. So it was kind of like, oh, this is something that's different. And I can kind of go down this path of learning something, maybe a little bit different angle to bring to the market. Uh, and that's kind of where we went. What was Eric doing at the time? Did he have his facility in Hudson? So he was just getting started. He, he had obviously had a, a little bit of reputation on the internet because he got invited to go to uh, Ron Wolfforce convention, but it was about 2008 into 2000, early 2009. So he had, he was in his second facility, which was the smaller one, 7,500 square feet. And he had a little cage in the middle. So when I reached out to him through a, a mutual friend, Brajesh Patel, who was my strength coach at Holy Cross and uh, had been with him at UConn. So that he, it was a nice connection there. Um, I just expressed that I was interested in biomechanics and some of the stuff he was doing. And 
he had, you know, professional athletes and high school athletes throwing in this cage, but no instruction. So it was kind of a nice fit where he was building athletes that need to learn how to throw more efficiently. And I was teaching, you know, basically pitchers to throw more efficiently, but needed them to get to be better athletes. So it was just a nice partnership right out of the gate. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you coached at Lincoln Sudbury uh, for six seasons as a pitching coach. Uh, What was the ultimate goal at that point? I mean, I can't, I can't imagine you thought, you know, one day I want to be the Yankees pitching coach. Was it, did you consider becoming a head coach? Yeah. So it was an interesting transition when uh, Kirk Fredericks first offered me the job. I was still a sales rep at this company, Concord Litho. And, you know, the economy wasn't great. Uh, so I was already kind of thinking about going a different path. And, you know, Kirk offered me a volunteer assistant position. So I wasn't going to be making any money, but it was just kind of like a, a breath of fresh air to get back on the field and coach. And so I started in that path. And then Kirk introduced me to Steve August and the New England Roughnecks. So I started to get out on the summer circuit there. And I felt like if I could get out there and kind of get myself in front of a lot more athletes and parents, the private lesson business was going to build that Cressy Sports Performance. So at least I had income that would basically give me a jumping off point for my sales position. So it kind of gave me a nice landing spot. And then from there, it was kind of like, let's just see how this goes. I never really had like a five-year plan of like what I was going to build the business to or where I was going to go. I, ultimately, I was probably thinking it was going to lead towards a, a college coaching position. You know, the, the pro route wasn't really open yet. It was kind of just starting to turn the corner where they were getting a little more innovative and thinking more about development and education. So, you know, three, four years in, I was starting to kind of get an itch of like what's next. Um, and that's when the uh, the Cape Cod League opened up. Hmm. And now what did you study at Holy Cross? What was your major there? Psychology and philosophy. So oh, okay. that was that was always a, an interesting conversation with my dad, who was an engineer, and my mom, who was kind of like uh, in finance accounting for a, a big corporation in healthcare. So they, they didn't quite understand what that path was going to look like. <laughs> yeah. Um, and have you ever considered along the way uh, going back to school or doing kinesiology or something like that that would be more applicable to what you're doing now? Yeah, I definitely consider and I always talk to Eric about that if it made sense to go get, you know, CSCS or go back and get a master's. And yeah, I always just felt like, you know, the the best learning you're doing is right here with the athlete and you're diving into all the textbooks and you're they're learning what you would get in that environment in this realm. So assuming you're doing the continuing education on your own, which I was, he's like, I wouldn't spend the money to go that direction unless you felt like you wanted to go into academia or you wanted to go in and, you know, college strength coach or something like that. He's, he's like, what your, what path you're on, you don't necessarily need those credentials, assuming that you're actually doing the work to learn it. That makes sense. And, and now it's interesting because you've landed in a position where you probably call on that psychology experience more now when you've got you're walking out to the mound you're trying to get guys settled down do you find that it's applicable now that you're a pitching coach yeah I've always felt like the psychology is a great uh, underlying tool for any environment I'm in just relating to people relating to humans in a group setting or a one-on-one setting just trying to understand you know how to communicate with an athlete and get to the you know the heart of what they need for information from me and kind of you know I think the psychology just ends up being the backbone of my you know instructional skills yeah absolutely uh, now, I was reading somewhere you've been described as a master at reverse engineering pitching mechanics. Um, I don't know if you would describe yourself that way, but what, what do you <laughs> think that means and how are you able to use video uh, so efficiently to help pitchers improve their performance? 
Yeah, I think that's where all the time digging in with Eric, that was really formative uh, in my career. Those like probably six, seven years I was at Cressy Performance where I was watching a lot of assessments he was doing. I was diving into the anatomy. I was diving into some of the kinesiology and then learning how they're building the performance in the weight room and how that translates to the movement on the mound. And then really getting back to just the like the heart of like, what is fundamental movement look like for a person? And then with the skill of pitching, what are we requiring them to do? And then it's really when I started using RightView Pro, which was a software solution at the time uh, and kind of slowing things down at 60 frames per second, it was kind of basically matching up what I knew about fundamental movement and the biomechanics with what the best pitchers looked like and started to have a little bit different language for maybe how to communicate pitching uh, and not just the old jargon of, you know, some of the things that were out there at the time. So I think that was where we got a little bit more specific and that was definitely helpful. Yeah. From a networking standpoint, like I remember going down and doing a story on Cressy sports performance when you were there and it just seemed like you were taking those evaluations and assessments and coming up with training plans that were just totally innovative and um, kind of changing the way that uh, big league players and college prospects trained and the way that they kind of laid out their annual plan. Uh, was there a moment where you said, all right, I have the trust of maybe it's this big league player, or maybe I just made a, a connection to this person in a front office where he said, Hey, there might be something big developing here for me. Yeah, I think we always had JP Ricciardi around and he always was a, a nice voice of reason about what, you know, what we were doing. And he had a lot of trust in us. His kids were going there. We had, you know, Corey Kluber at the time and Tim Collins. And we had a lot of up and coming high school and college players and, you know, Tyler Beatty and Adam Ravenel and a lot of those guys. So I think you knew that we were onto something special there and you had a skill set that was unique. It was just kind of finding the right opportunity that made sense to, to step away from that environment because I was making good money there and it was a good balanced lifestyle. So I didn't necessarily want to jump in and go coach a Gulf Coast League team and completely change my my lifestyle if I didn't need to. Um, so that's where the Cape Cod League was kind of a nice transition to get out of my comfort zone and coach a higher level player in a team setting. Uh, and then when a lot of teams started to move the needle in terms of how they wanted to move their minor leagues and kind of develop players. Uh, the Cleveland Indians came calling and there were probably three or four other teams that came. It just, the alignment seemed to make a lot more sense philosophically with what the Indians were trying to do and the role they were offering me um, as a minor league coordinator. Um, so it was really just the right time, right place with that type of, that group of people. Yeah. How does that play out? So, you know, I, I bet a lot of people are wondering, like, you know, the Cleveland Indians come calling. How does that process play out? Do you go up there for an interview yeah. or, you know, how does that all play out? Yeah. So by the 2014, 2015, uh, obviously, Eric and I had a little bit more notoriety in the baseball industry. Uh, I'd spent a lot of time around the, the Yankees group with the area code team. Uh, I started to do some seminars. I went and spoke at uh, ABCA one off season. I spoke at uh, Pitchapalooza, which is a big uh, pitching you know, think tank, if you will. And the Indians had kind of gone out and kind of started to seek out some of these people with Derek Falvey, who was uh, director of baseball operations at the time, now the president of Minnesota Twins. And Eric Binder was the kind of overseeing the minor league pitching. So they approached me and they called and see if I was interested. And just they wanted to learn more about my skill set. So they flew me out to Cleveland 
uh, in September of 15 and kind of just started talking. And I met with a bunch of different people, kind of a gauntlet of interviews just to get a sense of where I might fit. And they didn't necessarily have a, a role in mind. They kind of want to see what I was interested in. And then they initially offered me like a low A pitching coach job, which would be a nice landing spot. And I thought long and hard about it, just didn't quite meet the threshold to leave uh, Cressy Sports Performance. But then they kind of did a little bit of reorganizing and they moved one of their lower level coordinators into oversee the Dominican Academy and kind of opened up that spot where I could kind of step into a coordinator role, but not have to lead the group. And I could kind of learn while Ruben Niebla was the main coordinator and could kind of show me the ropes of just what pro baseball was. And so I didn't you know, get out over my skis too far and can kind of learn on, on the job a little bit, which was awesome. Yeah, and, and you had a lot of success, or at least the pitching staff while you were there had a lot of success. Uh, when you were in Cleveland, guys like Shane Bieber, Mike Clevenger, and Zach Plesak uh, turned into legitimate you know, stars in the, in the major leagues. In the case of Bieber, a future Cy Young winner, um, in what ways did you contribute to their success? Yeah, so it was funny because Shane Bieber was one of the guys who was on our Cape League team that summer. So I had you know good intel on who he was and really liked his professionalism. And then when the, they moved around to the draft in 2016. I had a lot of insight and just a lot of the, the, the amateur landscape. So I got involved in just the way Cleveland is. They're collaborative and a lot of the coordinators and player development people are involved in the scouting process. So I helped evaluate a lot of the pitchers in that group. And Shane happened to be one of them and kind of fell to a spot that we were comfortable taking him. Um, and then when we got him in, it was you know, he was 88 to 92. He had a, a strike breaking ball and kind of a limited use change up. And there are just some things in his delivery that he could continue to tighten up and get a little bit stronger. And now the power started to come in the fastball and we started to tighten up the breaking ball a little bit. And I mean, Shane's just the ultimate adapter. He would continue to improve and continue to seek out information while, you know, not throwing out what it was making him so successful at the time. So I think that the iterative process he went through to continue to improve was really impressive. And it was kind of the the strength of the Indian system at the time was we could have a collaborative group that didn't kind of didn't have too many messages or too many cooks in the kitchen. We were very good at simplifying messages and streamlining player development. So that's where we saw, you know, Savali improve and Bieber improve. And a lot of these guys make, you know, quick move of the system. Yeah, absolutely. And Savali, he's actually a Northeastern guy, yep. a New England guy who's continuing to yeah. uh, do really well. And now, um, so you went, obviously you were in Cleveland for a few years and had a lot of success. What was it, what was the process like of, uh, when the Yankees reached out to interview you, uh, for the pitching coach position? Yeah, it was definitely a, uh, interesting time. Cause I, at that point was kind of thinking about, I was, I was in the front office and I was a little bit more removed from the field. And I was kind of feeling like I wanted to get more in the environment of the game and get back into the dugout and the competitive spirit and kind of impact the player in a one-on-one -on -one relationship level. And so I'd kind of just thought about what that next step might look like and whether that was a bullpen role somewhere or a pitching coach role at college level. And um, at the time, Larry Rothschild had just been fired and uh, they Brian Cashman called over to Chris Antonetti and my friend Eric Binder and I were coming back from lunch one day and Chris asked me to come into his office real quick and just kind of like, hmm, what did I do that I'm getting called into the office for? Right. Uh, and he said that, you know, Brian Cashman called and uh, they were interested in interviewing me for uh, the major league pitching coach role. And it kind of took me back a little bit, like, you know, you're sure they have the right guy. Cause I mean, obviously they were in a, a contending window and I didn't really have the classic major league pitching coach experience that a lot of teams have been kind of looking for. But when I spoke with 
cash on the phone before I took the interview. I was just trying to make sure it wasn't like just an information seeking interview of like, what are the Indians doing? How do we get to that development style? And he kind of just spoke to the, the system they were trying to build and kind of some of the things they were looking to do using analytics, understanding the education component and continue to develop at the major league level and kind of fit a lot of the things we were doing in Cleveland. So I think it, it made sense to take the interview and, you know, even if it was just for experience going through the process, but I think what they saw was just with the, the way we were integrated in Cleveland, I was just exposed to a lot of different things in terms of understanding the use of analytics, understanding using the objective information to develop pitchers, you know, speaking to these guys on a high level while still getting to go compete. Uh, so I think that it just was a natural fit at that point. Yeah, that's great. Uh, well, we will be back with more with Matt Blake after these messages. Firecracker Sports serves all first-time and experienced coaches that are looking for quality showcase tournaments to promote their players and teams. We offer the most independently operated baseball and softball events in the Northeast region with qualified staff and college coaches to help you and your players get maximum promotion. Besides events, you can get all your baseball and softball needs with our player profiles, hotels, and even facility sales now. With Firecracker Sports, you can save time effort and money by getting all of your events college resources and customer attention in one place every season welcome back to the new england baseball journal podcast i'm with yankees pitching coach matt blake matt thanks again for joining us we're we're getting up to the part of the career where you're the yankees pitching coach so i wanted to ask you was there any trepidation about taking such a high-profile position? And you know the scrutiny that goes around the Yankees, especially when they're uh, struggling. What, did you have any second thoughts about that? Absolutely. I was, it was another one of those scenarios where I had a job that I really liked. I was working with people that I really enjoyed. It was a, a really fulfilling organization, and I was on a nice path with the Indians. Um, and I was kind of in the background, so there wasn't a lot of noise about what I was doing. You know, we were having success, but I wasn't, you know, you know, living and dying every night with the team. Uh, and then you stare across the field that you're going to be the pitching coach with the New York Yankees and the bright lights and the New York media and the fan base and the expectations. And, you know, they're, they're two completely different jobs, even though they're both in Major League Baseball. So it was definitely something that I had to think long and hard about. And I talked to a lot of other major league pitching coaches and reached out to some other people about their perspective on the new me and kind of knew my path. And so I just trying to get a full understanding of like what the lifestyle was going to be like, where as the, you know, basically director of pitching on the front office, I had a lot more balance of, you know, probably out on the road with local affiliates and seeing some amateur play, but being home most nights and, you know, on the major league side, you're going to be on the 200 day train and 162 games. And, you know, every night you've got something going on. So your schedule is fully dictated for the next, you know, six, seven months. Um, I think when it came down to it was I, I was still seeking that excitement to get back in and a, a, a impact players on a player to coach level and try to win a World Series. And I think, you know, where I was at in my career, I was willing to take the risk that it may not work out and you may be willing to take the brunt of, you know, some fan booing and, you know, the media getting on us at times. And, you know, it was worth, you know, being a little bit uncomfortable at that point in my career because I felt like it was something I could always fall back to later of going back to a front office or a coordinator role. And, you know, if you passed up the New York Yankees pitching coach role, that may never come back again. So it was, I think it was just when it came down to it, it was something I had to at least try. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And how have you found that that you've dealt with that scrutiny? Has it been difficult for you or um, has it been kind of like easy to handle? I, I think early on, you're, you know, it's out there, but you're maybe a little naive to what it is or where it's going to come from. And I think last year for it was obviously a crazy year in 2020, but in some ways it was a nice transition because we only played 60 games. There were no fans in the stands. So you're not, you don't get the full impact of, you know, the fan environment if you're playing well or poorly. So there's, there's positives and negatives to both of that. But I always joke that, you know, if we didn't play well, you know, there's nobody booing you in the stands in New York city, nobody knew what I looked like. So if you didn't want to feel bad, just don't search your name on Twitter and you can kind of control the filter a little bit. But I think this year has been a nice transition in and the fans are back in the stands and, I think it's just you just learn to, to roll with the punches a little bit. And obviously there's high expectations for what we're doing, but it's part of what you signed up for. And, you know, when it's going well, it's great. And then when it's not going well, you just need to understand that that's part of it. Yeah, I like that Twitter message. It's uh, they, they say for writers, don't read the comments, you know, if, no doubt. <laughs> um, that's funny. Now, uh, what what was the, how would you assess your performance on that first year? Was it really difficult to make that transition? And you know, so many, like you said, so many challenging factors with the shortened season. Yeah, I, I would give myself like a you know a B on the first year, just given that the the team you know was it was a strong strong staff that maybe we underperformed a little bit, and there was obviously a lot of factors involved there. I think the the part that I was most frustrated by was that. Yeah, outside of the the buildups, ramp down, build up, short season, and so you never really got to really get in rhythm. Mm-hmm. I think the the cohesiveness of the staff and the communication and the things that we wanted to do on a, a, as a group and some of the dialogue we wanted to get to was limited because of the the COVID protocols and we couldn't really have in person meetings as a group and things like that. So. I don't think we ever got the culture to the place that I wanted to in my first year. And that was a big priority in getting Garrett and some of these guys on board in the off season of how we want this group to kind of to pitch together, even though it's going to be one at a time on the mound, we need to build on each other's performances and watch the game together and talk to each other about it after. And I think there needs to be more of a pack mentality about how we approach these lineups. And that's something I feel like we've really gotten to this year. And some of the performances we've had are, you know, watching the game and seeing how teams are adjusting to us. And we're, we're, we're much more iterative as a group and not pitching one off, you know, one guy pitches and then the next guy doesn't learn anything from the guy before him. So I feel like we're in a much better place as a group. Yeah. You hear uh, coaches at every level talk about that culture and how important it is to establish that and make sure everybody's pulling in the same direction. I guess one thing that isn't so, uh, um, isn't paralleled at every level of the sport is you have these guys who are just so exceptional and have these out pitches was it difficult to uh, to kind of adjust to that where you say, you know, this is just an exceptional talent. I have to make adjustments to, for these for these players. Yeah, I think you're trying to calibrate your eyes at the level that, you know, these guys expect to be at. So you can watch Garrett Cole throw a bullpen and think, yeah, this is an elite talent. You know, but there's a level that he's trying to get to to be a Cy Young caliber pitcher. Mm-hmm. And so early on last year, he was a little off track and, you know, wasn't getting the swing and miss on the fastball that we were looking for and was kind of scattering the zone a little bit more than he normally does. So I think then that's one thing that we settled on early on as a group was we're going to use the objective information as a talking point to at least center up on. It's not my opinion versus your opinion. 
there are things that we agree upon that are important to establish, you know, whether it's certain pitch profiles or certain level of swing and miss we're looking for, certain areas we're looking for you to pitch in. So that way it allows us to have a much more centered conversation and not get too worked up one way or the other of, you know, it's just a subjective opinion that I'm based on my history. I think you should do this or your history. You should do this is, you know, you've established yourself at a certain level and these are things we expect. So these are things we can hold you accountable to. And that made it a lot easier to kind of make adjustments with guys because it didn't feel so personal. What about workload? Because these guys are so strong and, um, you know, so exceptional in terms of their athletic ability, but you've, you've gone from 50 or 60 games to 162 games. And it's just, um, you know, have you found it difficult to adjust to, Hey, you know, this guy should only be out there for this number of pitches this early in the season, or this is a guy who, you know, can go 120 pitches and gets better as he goes. Yeah, it's it's definitely a question the industry is wrestling with at large where, you know, there's the great unknown of what this is going to look like once we get deeper into the season. We, we did our best to try and slow roll a lot of our starters into the season with pitch counts and getting them extra days when we can. And now we're kind of in the flow of every fifth and sixth day trying to get to 95, 100 pitches, you know, a little bit more – uh, usual workload, but very aware that we need to follow some of the objective metrics as well of how our guys trending with their velocity and pitch shapes and their delivery and how they're recovering. So we're trying to check as many boxes as possible with the, with the idea that we really don't know what this is going to look like in July and August, but we need to be ready to pivot and be flexible if needed. And you hear some people complain these days that uh, baseball is just, it's all home runs and strikeouts. And it, it kind of has been trending in that direction for a long time. What do you attribute that to, and is there uh, is there any way to change that course? Yeah, it's interesting because obviously the analytics have come into play, and the value of a home run or a strikeout obviously is understood at a higher level. The shifts are definitely impacting the balls in play. You know, the ball has been changing. Obviously, it's there's word out there that pitchers are using substances to improve their spin rates and things like that. So there's a lot of things that are happening to take away the action, and I know that that's become a, a – an initiative for the commissioner's office to try and figure out ways to make the game more exciting and bring back more action, more base hits, more base running, you know, things like that to take away from the downtime of, you know, the swing and miss and the strikeouts and the home runs. So it's definitely been led there from a lot of the information and the way the game has been trending. I think they're going to, they're trying to find ways to pull it back. So it becomes a more exciting game for the, the fans. So we'll see where we end up here over the next year or two. Yeah. You seem like someone who who never really had a roadmap that said, hey, this is where I want to go to get to where you are now. Have you thought about big picture if, you know, being a manager, a major league baseball manager, or would you do you ever think about going back in the front office or what are you thinking at this point in your career? Yeah, I felt like when I took this job at, you know, 34, 35, I, you know, there was a three-year contract as a window of like, let's see what this looks like. And then we can kind of reassess at the end of this. And, you know, if I want to keep going as a, a major league staff member, whether it's as a pitching coach or a manager down the road, or if the lifestyle doesn't make sense, you know, transitioning back into a front office role of some sort or a coordinator role of some sort. But I was kind of going to take it as, as we went and what made sense for our family and, you know, for whether I was enjoying it or not. And so far, I've, I've really enjoyed the, the everyday interaction with the athlete and the competitive spirit of trying to win baseball games with the New York Yankees. So, you know, I figure it just keep taking it one step at a time and, you know, be where your feet are. And, you know, when the three years is up and they, they come to reassess the situation, we'll, we'll make another decision. But so far, it's been a really enjoyable experience. That's great. 
I wanted to ask, we mentioned Corey Kluber earlier and he, um, where, you know, he has a lot of fans here in New England, obviously, and he, he kind of had the roller coaster a couple of weeks ago of, you know, throwing a no hitter. And then I think it was his next outing yeah. that he got hurt. Now he's uh, on the shelf for a while. Um, what was that roller coaster like for you? And is do you see those two as related that he, you know, stayed in for a no hitter and then got injured? Yeah, it's tricky because unfortunately I was on the COVID uh, IL at the time. We had uh, a, a bunch of staff members who got uh, tested positive for COVID when we were in Tampa and we got uh, quarantined for 10 days. And then it was on like day eight of my quarantine, day nine of my quarantine that Corey goes out and throws a no hitter while I'm watching from a hotel room. And it was gut wrenching to say the least. But then, uh, you know, I felt like, he, you know, there weren't a lot of stressful innings to get to the point. He kind of earned the opportunity to go out in the eighth and ninth inning. He only threw about 103 pitches, I believe, somewhere in that ballpark. So it wasn't uh, an an uh, a workload that you were concerned about. Now, obviously, it had been three or four uh, higher end workloads for him in a row. And then he comes out on his sixth day and uh, pitches and just the shoulder doesn't feel right. So we take him out after the third inning, hoping that we got ahead of it. And, you know, they start imaging and, you know, obviously it goes down the path of there is something there. So we need to take it some downtime. So you're like, man, is there anything we missed? You know, things like that. You're always going to look back and say, you know, what could we have done differently? And, I feel good with the way we approached it. We slow rolled him into the season. We understood there was risk involved with Corey just coming off two years of not pitching. So, you know, I think we, we tried to handle as best we could and take his feedback of how he was feeling and give him the opportunity to take pitch on a sixth and seventh day at times. So, you know, it's one of those things where you live with a little bit of risk and obviously here it came back to, to bite us and hopefully we get him back here and, you know, about eight weeks or so, we'll see how it goes. He's getting another opinion today out in LA. So we'll see. Yeah, hopefully it's good news. Uh, you hear, I hear often from guys who go on to play professionally that you know. I know I read that you grew up a Red Sox fan, but then once they are playing every night and the games are all at the same time, seven o'clock, they're no longer able to be a fan. And if they're home on a weekend, you know they're spending time with their family. They're not watching games if they have a day off. Do you find uh, that you've lost your fanhood at all, or has it been affected, or are you still a big baseball fan? Yeah, I'd say I'm a. I always said I was like kind of like a baseball enthusiast at large. I was local to the Red Sox, so I watched all their games. I always rooted for the Mariners growing up because I liked the, the Ken Griffey Jr. era with Randy Johnson and those guys. So I would say I was partial to the Red Sox because they were local and I could go watch them in person and things like that. But once I kind of moved on and got with the Indians, you kind of start to see maybe the underbelly of just Major League Baseball in general, and it's more about the people. And so you start rooting for individual players and groups of people and, you know, f- friends in other front offices and things like that. So maybe the jersey isn't as impactful as it used to be, but there, there are people that you just enjoy watching and seeing have success, which is kind of fun to see across the league. Absolutely, yeah. Those Ken Griffey Jr. teams were so fun to watch. I used to love watching yeah, him play. Um, last question for you, um, because, you know, we have a lot of Red Sox fans listening. Have, uh, have, what's your scouting report on them? Have you been surprised by the way they've gotten off to a, gr- a pretty good start, you know, much better yeah. than they were last year. Ha- has that surprised you? Obviously we've taken notice of what the offense has been doing and they're back to, you know, full throttle. So I think it's obviously been nice to see that, you know, that they're, they're having success this year. And, you know, JD Martinez is back to being JD Martinez and Raphael Devers has come around and Bogarts is one of the best shortstops in the league. So, you know, they're earning this and uh, the pitching staff has, you know, probably overperformed what the expectations were for that group. So um, they're definitely a, form, a formidable foe and the AL East is shaping up to be a beast again. So we got, 
gotta we gotta hold our own here with this uh, four game stretch of the Rays right into the Red Sox. So uh, it's exciting times in the AL East. Absolutely, yeah. And you better start preparing for the Red Sox. So we'll we'll let you get going. But um, Matt, thank you so much in the middle of the season for taking the time and joining the New England Baseball Journal podcast. No problem. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thanks again to Matt Blake for joining us in the middle of the Yankees season to discuss his incredible journey from a Holy Cross baseball player to working in sales for two years to becoming the Lincoln Sudbury coach to working at Cressy Sports Performance to joining the Cleveland Indians and working in their player development program and then all of a sudden becoming the New York Yankees pitching coach. It's really an incredible story. Inspiring for anyone who might think that their baseball career is coming to an end just because their playing days are over. He has a knack for evaluating video as well as analytics and laying these paths for these players to really excel at the highest level of baseball. We want to interact with you. We want to find out what you want to hear on the podcast. So reach out to us by email at dguttonplan at baseballjournal.com or on Twitter at ne underscore baseball. Our next guest on the podcast is Matt Duffy, a former Major League Baseball player who is now hosting clinics in the Milton, Massachusetts area. He has a great perspective on what it takes to reach the next level of baseball for players who want to play in college or the pros. We can't wait to have Matt Duffy. Again, reach out to us by email, dguttonplan at baseballjournal.com with any questions you want us to ask Matt. Or you can follow us on Twitter, NE underscore baseball, to see all of our updates. We can't wait to release the summer edition of New England Baseball Journal. Follow us on Twitter, NE underscore baseball, to find out all of the stories that we're working on and are posted to baseballjournal.com. Thanks again for listening to the New England Baseball Journal podcast. We'll see you next time.